It is Friday, and we are working for Crusoe Friday, March 1st, 2024, back from a week's hiatus. He is Sam Park. I am John Ramey, and we wish all of you a hearty Dobre Gen, Sam, which you will undoubtedly recognize as good day in Russian. Uh, we're going to return our focus to the murderous and expansionist autocracy of Russian dictator Vladimir Putin today. Uh, his killing of political prisoner Alexei Navalny. Europe's scramble for solutions to deter a belligerent Russia and the threat of a Putin ally returning to the White House. Uh, Europe's scrambling for solutions. Also, the question of frozen Russian assets. Can those be legally used to help aid the Ukrainian cause? Of course, uh, last week was the two-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So we are now into year three of a major ground war in Europe. Um, but let's start with uh, Alexei Navalny, who was buried today, Sam. Yes. The New York Times, uh, Valerie Hopkins reporting thousands of people crowded into a neighborhood on Moscow's outskirts uh, on Friday. Today, some bearing flowers and chanting no to war as they tried to catch a glimpse uh, of the funeral uh, for Alexei Navalny. Um this is not normal in Russia. There have been uh, hundreds of arrests thus far of mourners at various memorial sites since Navalny's death on February 16th. Yes, but none at the funeral. Yes, itself. no widespread arrests in this one. So maybe a uh, calculation for the politically sensitive moment. In a way, yes. And also, it the funeral was taking place at a church. Yeah. And... Uh, Putin is known to be very closely allied with the Russian Orthodox Church. I think he might have deemed it unwise to conduct a large number of arrests in that particular location. The it might be thing, off brand for him uh, domestically, politically. Yes. And the other thing is that uh, he can sort of pretend he's not a tyrant, right? And say, okay, go ahead. Have your funeral. I get it. It's a church. All right. The guy's dead. Uh, put him in the ground and let's move on to our regularly scheduled autocratic repression. Uh, as Navalny's coffin was lowered into his grave, my way, the Frank Sinatra classic was played. I would point out that's written by Paul Anka, but for Frank Sinatra. And then they also played the theme to Terminator 2, which Navalny claimed was like the greatest movie ever. Really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, that's Naval kind of disappointing to me, but that, you know. Well, one out of two ain't bad, but listen, I yeah. mean, the guy's, a, the guy's a hero, right? He died while sure. being held in a sub Siberian. He literally died as a political prisoner in a Siberian prison. Uh, he was in the custody of the Russian Federal Penitentiary Service. He was 47. Yes, he and he'd been there for, he'd been not in that prison, but he'd been in prison in Russia for three years. And he had survived an assassination attempt and then had returned to Russia to help lead the resistance, knowing it would likely cost him his freedom, if not his life. That's right. I think there was some hope, perhaps not on his, by himself, but some of his supporters seemed to think that he would be sort of a Nelson Mandela figure. Uh, and I think that was... Probably not the wisest hope to have. I don't uh, think Navalny thought that. I don't know. I know that's the, exactly the point. I don't think he believed that. But at the same time, he probably if he didn't believe it, he must have known that 
uh, he was costing himself his own life. Uh, because if, I, I mean, honestly, that was what I thought when he was in prison, all right, is that, okay, he might, you know, they failed to assassinate him through, you know, uh, various nerve agents and what have you. Uh, but once he's in prison, that's pretty much it for him. Now, here and there, other Russian opposition figures have been released, for example, Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Uh, but that was quite some time ago. And things have changed in Russia quite a lot since then. And so uh, it seems to me that Navalny should have known that he was signing his own death warrant by returning to Russia and risking imprisonment. That's what makes this all the more compelling. You know, this uh, is, uh, some people would say that, and I can understand why they why would they would think that. I would counter, however, that uh, there's a reason that autocrats uh, put to death their political opponents, uh, and that's that reason is because it works, right? You take the the, the person off the table, uh, and I think even though they did try to assassinate him, in a, in a way. Holding him in prison was better, right? Because you just sort of keep him in your pocket and you can deploy this at any time, right? For, for example, for, we mentioned Navalny's death before our previous episode two weeks ago, at which point the Munich Security Conference had just convened. Uh, and I believe uh, Navalny died the night before the opening day of the Munich Security Conference. Now, John... As you might know, I find the Munich Security Conference pretty interesting, just in general, and even more so in the past couple of years. Uh, but I'm not the sort of person who's going to hunt down the advanced media materials for the Munich Security Conference. Right, you're not see. reading the game notes ahead of time? No, you know, <laughs> and, uh, but the point I'm making is that I don't think Vladimir Putin would have had to deploy his intelligence services to find out that Yulia Navalnaya, now Navalny's widow, uh, was scheduled to speak on the opening day of the conference. Uh, And so, uh, in a way, killing Navalny at that moment sort of gave Putin himself a silent keynote slot in Munich. Uh, And now that doesn't mean he had to do it then, but Things have yeah, been but going- why then? Well, that's yeah. one good reason. Yeah, things have been going rather well for Putin right now. Uh, he, his troops that had just taken Avdi- uh, Avdivka in Ukraine, and they're, in fact, are continuing to take ter- territory in eastern Ukraine as we speak. Uh, our Congress can't seem to find any more aid for Ukraine. That's a win for him. Uh, and as by the way, about a week before the conference, uh, Donald Trump, on a campaign appearance, said that if any NATO, unprompted by the way, that if any NATO ally had not contributed enough of their own GDP to their own defense spending, that Trump would not just allow someone to invade them, but in fact, encourage the invader to do, as he put it, whatever the hell they want. Uh, And then he then, just as an aside, he said, you got to pay your bills, which 
First of all, that's rich coming yeah, from him. That's pretty rich coming from him, but that's also not how NATO works. Actually, yeah, NATO right? is not NATO is not a tenant in your in your apartment complex. That's right. Uh, and so uh, that was about a week before Munich, and that raised a lot of hue and cry across Europe, as you might expect. I think partly Putin might have thought, you know what? I don't want him to be the guy that everybody's talking about in Munich. I want it to be me, right? And he had the perfect way of doing that. And then once he finds out that Navalny's wife is speaking in opening day, he's like, okay, this is the time to play that card, right? Now that, I don't know that, right? But uh, you have to admit, John, it's a pretty good story. Yeah, it's a fine narrative and one that I'll accept um, because you do wonder, like he was, what, he was in custody for two years? Three. You know, three. Why now? exactly, yeah. Yeah. Why now? So he's 47 and he is a martyr to the cause of freedom around the world. Alexei Navalny. Yes, but um, will in, in 10 years, will people remember him a lot more than they remember someone like Boris Nemtsov, who was gunned down in front of the Kremlin, right? Or uh, Anna Politkovskaya, who was also assassinated in 2006. And who's I was- you? I don't know either of those. I might remember the killing at the Kremlin, but like I, I do think the international moment is uh, greater now because yes, of okay. the invasion. I, I would I would agree with that, but at the same time, again, there's a reason you kill your opponents, right? Any other thoughts on Navalny, or can we pivot to um, the meeting of twenty European uh, leaders in Paris to talk about what to do uh, if a Putin ally? gets into the White House, among other things. I mean, the, the, it's not really much of a pivot. It's all the same story, right? It, uh, it is. It's insane. There's a murderous, expansionist autocrat sitting on the world's largest stockpile of nuclear arms who seems hell-bent on testing the limits of NATO. Yes. and It's wild. It, it's it is, terrifying. It is pretty crazy. And yeah. again, those comments by Donald Trump have really lit a fire under everybody to try and figure out what they're going to do uh, in case Trump wins and there will be no more aid for Ukraine coming from the United States, which, by the way, I'm not convinced that we'll get any aid to Ukraine this year, never mind if Trump comes in. But that uh, we can talk about that perhaps a little bit later today. Uh, but the biggest headline, of course, was uh, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron saying that we shouldn't rule out stationing nato troops in ukraine uh and now of course this is a very french and especially very macron sort of thing to say uh but european leaders couldn't fall over each other fast enough to distance themselves from macron's comments uh but again for instance during the first trump administration uh, in 2019, Macron was already using phrases like European strategic autonomy uh, because he was a young, dynamic leader, very forward-looking and thinking. And of course, the French love to sort of cut their own path in di- diplomacy, even in the context of Europe and especially in the context of NATO. Uh, and so even then he was talking about things like this. And in a way, even though other European leaders said, well, we don't really want to do things like this. But at the same time, 
some of them were like, okay, I can't say something like that, but I'm not actually unhappy that Manny did, right? Because uh, he's the perfect person to do this. Again, he's French, and this is the kind of thing that they normally do. It's the kind of thing that he's done before, right? So it's not out of character for him. He is a lame duck president in his own country, but his term still lasts another three years. So even his own successor in his own party wouldn't necessarily have to be saddled with something like this. Right. But he can say and do what's on his mind because exactly. And and by the way, he's certainly not the only person in Europe who thinks along these lines. He's just the only one who's in a political position to be able to say so with relative impunity. Now, maybe it's because I'm American and deterrence through strength is a concept I'm familiar with that has worked, however imperfectly. But the fact that it is not more politically uh, popular in Europe, when you think about the real possibility of the United States security blanket being severely weakened. Okay, but it's never been especially popular in Europe by the way. And I understand the context, right? There have been two disastrous wars in the last hundred years. Like militarizing Europe is is unpopular. I get it. Yeah. And, and, you know, when the United States- But things have changed, man. When, okay, but, well, yeah, they have in some ways. But when the United States wanted to uh, station nuclear missiles in Germany, there was enormous protests in Germany, right? This was very controversial even then. During the time of the Soviet Union. Now, you could argue that the threat is, you know, reconstituted today, and I would agree with that. But what I'm saying is, even in those days, that was a very serious threat. And by the way, uh, that almost led to a second Cuban Missile Crisis, although no one knew it at the time. It only emerged later that that had happened. Uh, And so I'm less surprised about this than you are, let's say. Well, and, and maybe with good reason. So you sent me a fascinating segment about this conference in Paris and Macron saying no options are off the table. And then German Chancellor Olaf Scholz saying, uh, no, 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 we're not doing that at all. Um, Benjamin Tallis from the uh, German Council on Foreign Affairs. I think uh, it was, was the German Center for Strategic and International Studies, if I'm okay. not mistaken. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank you. He was great. Uh, And we'll put a link to this interview from DW, which is the English language German news outlet. Um, He said, look, this is just the public. This is the tip of the iceberg uh, attached to a behind the scenes effort to create a lane or perhaps to goad Olaf Scholz, the German leader, into having a little bit of room to even entertain something that, as you have pointed out, is very traditionally politically unpopular but germany although not nuclear armed is the biggest country in europe is the biggest economy in europe so uh, if there's going to be some strategic thinking about european security without the united states germany is going to have to play a part in that and macron knows that yes on the other hand germany is already the single largest european provider of military and economic aid to ukraine even though France has far and away the largest and most capable military in uh, in Europe. So ah, special circumstances, Germany. Th- yeah, okay, but they're, fine. They're, but there's a tension here. On the, uh, 
mind you, in a way, it's sort of a horses for courses thing, right? Macron could say, well, we've got a larger army. And nukes. Right? Yeah, and, and so we can, that that's what we have is, is people, right? Uh, uh, Germany really does need to step up its industrial production of munitions, uh, to, and they're trying to do this, but it's taking a very, very long time. Putting and, the German economy on a, quote, wartime footing, as has been used in discussions about this, is, you know, yeah, I, I get it. That, it's that's not easy to do. Yeah. Especially uh, after the last century. Exactly. And uh, one sort of, I don't, I don't want to say humorous, but let's say, uh, I don't know, uh, unusual thing that happened, uh, I believe, a couple of weeks ago tomorrow was the uh, president, not the prime minister, but the president of the Czech Republic, uh, Petr Pavel, uh, announced that uh, his country had found hundreds of thousands of rounds of ammunition that they could ship to uh, Ukraine very quickly. Now, that's great. Uh, I guess they were like under a tarp in his garden shed or something. Because, right. uh, you know, John, it's always the last place you look. Right. Uh, but this is not a macro solution. All right. Countries around Europe aren't going to be like, oh, look. Uh, and so, you know, I'm hey, we that- found extra munitions in our couch cushions. Yeah. Now, mind you, one or two might. All right. Uh, but uh, this is not something that we can apply across the board. Right. There needs to be better systems. And so I was heartened this week when uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, announced that uh, that Europe had agreed to joint procurement of defense assets for the first time. Uh, and this sort of followed, like, for instance, joint spending on things other than, say, agriculture in the European Union has always been viewed very skeptically because spending should be, it's thought, the province of individual member states. Uh, And so until the time of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, there was very little joint spending. That changed with COVID when uh, COVID relief funds were jointly procured and dispersed. Uh, And that could have really changed the way the EU operates going forward, it's too early to say. Uh, but if this joint defense procurement goes through, then we would say it will have, and for very good reason, by the way. But again, the European Union is not an institution known for doing things quickly, quite the reverse, in fact. So we'll have to see how fast this joint procurement can get off the ground uh, and start providing aid. But the specter hanging over all of this, as we know, right, is these discussions would not be happening. Macron would not be talking about putting boots on the ground. Petr Pavel would not be finding munitions in his garden shed. Uh, maybe Ursula von der Leyen would have gone so far as to come about with joint defense procurement for the EU. Maybe not. That is, if it were not for the failure of the United States over the course of months now to provide. Now, I'm going to any- say you brought this up on a phone call we had yesterday. I'm going to say it's a catastrophic dereliction of duty and an abandonment of internationalism that stretches back beyond Donald Trump. 
I would agree with that. And you and I talked about this on the phone yesterday that it's it starts with George W. Bush, not H.W., who was a committed internationalist. Yes. It started with W., who was not an isolationist at, by any stretch, but as you said, he was a unilateralist. Yes, not an internationalist. And I yeah. think people, on the one hand, uh, are, and, and for instance, I think that might be why this is being treated as if it's something like a routine matter. Right, because in a way, because you're said twenty years of practice of the United States not being international. Yes, uh, and and we've sort of gotten used to that. Uh, but the point I would like to make is that this is not just about Donald Trump, no. uh, and we people would like to pretend that it is. And I think it is a cas- catastrophic dereliction of duty by one of the two major political parties. Yes. And it's been going on for decades. It's been moving in this direction for decades, and. Uh, now it's all the more astounding because the Republicans were the tough internationalists. They were the hardliners. Yes, but starting with George W. Bush, they've started to move away from that position, which is and, deeply ironic because he loved Reagan. Sorry. Go yes. Ahead. Well, but he also wasn't very bright. Uh, and by the way, he was also the first Republican president to cozy up to Vladimir Putin. And mm. I think this is a crucial distinction to make. Yes, the Russian Federation is the successor nation of the Soviet Union. And yes, Vladimir Putin does wish to reconstitute something like the Soviet Union. However, Vladimir Putin is a figure of the right. And we need to make sure that we point this out very explicitly. For example, George W. Bush was and is an evangelical Christian, and he was the first American evangelical president for who, since the time that evangelicals became the base of, or an important element of the base of the Republican voting public. And this is very important. Bush's first meeting with Putin took place in the summer of 2001 in Slovenia, which was then an aspiring NATO and EU member. They had yet to join, but they were, they were, they were in the process of doing these things. Bush, this was, Bush had just become president earlier that year. Is this year. where he stared into his eyes? Yes. Bush had just become president earlier that year. Putin had only been president for about a year and a half. People didn't really know a lot about him. I I think a lot of people looking back on it would say, okay, we probably did know enough uh, to to be suspicious of him. George W. Bush, uh, by his own words, looked Putin in the eyes and got a sense of his soul, is how he put it. Uh, And this is, again, specifically religious uh, terminology. Uh, to say something like this. It was reported at the time that in their first conversation, Putin had spoken to Bush about God. And so... What uh, a breakthrough from the former godless communists. Exactly, right? So evangelical Christians during the Cold War were opposed to the Soviet Union because they were godless. George W. Bush... The evangelical president 
of the Republican Party essentially told his supporters. These are good guys now. These are good guys now. Now, I should say, Republicans were not the only people at that moment who thought the Russians are going to be our friends. It's the end of history, blah, blah, blah. Listen, W. Nonsense. Bush's successor, Barack Obama, who you and I have admired in for a long time, very clearly did not deal with the Russian question correctly. We That's now right. can see. Right. I should this, say, this, is, this is a bipartisan critique of American internationalism. I should say, however... Uh, that at the time that they tried to hit the reset button, as they called it, with Russia, Putin was not president. Uh, uh, Dmitry Medvedev was president. There was some hope that maybe uh, there could be something of a power shift. That that was a mistake, as you said. Whatever the annexation of uh, the Crimean Peninsula happened, and that's right. And the American and, response was now, in retrospect, very clearly insufficient. Yeah, and I, to his credit, I think George W. Bush wised up about Putin by the time he yes. left office. And but, certainly George W. Bush now, if he ever spoke on the record, w- would not be uh, like in agreement with Donald Trump's assessment of Putin. Yes, but he doesn't ever speak on the record. He has never come out and said, I was wrong about Vladimir Putin, right? Uh, instead, he has Obama. No, I don't think so. But the point is that I. Uh, as I said, Putin is a figure of the right. George W. Bush is a figure of the right. George W. Bush is an evangelical Christian. Uh, uh, Vladimir Putin supports the uh, the Orthodox the, Russian the Orthodox, Orthodox Russian Church very strongly. Vladimir Putin persecutes gay people very vociferously. By yeah. the way, yeah. uh, George W. Bush campaigned for re-election on a promise to support a constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage. Not that, not just legislation, mind you. Not just that he himself was opposed to the idea of gay marriage. He said that he intended to enshrine marriage inequality in the founding document of our country. And so when he told his supporters that he had gotten a sense of Vladimir Putin's soul, any of those supporters who cared could have done a little research and said, wow, this guy Putin, he hates gay people just as much as I do. Uh, And so, for instance, when Donald Trump ran for president, he said things like, build the wall. And in fact, even before he became. He started running. He first came to political attention as a, a fomenter of the birther conspiracy. Right later, he wanted to ban Muslims. He did not create any of those ideas. Those were all very popular ideas on the on the far right, or perhaps not quite so far. Uh, should we imagine then that his admiration was? For Vladimir Putin was something that he just came up with on his own. I think it's sincere, mind you, but I don't. But I think he also knew that this was something that was a popular opinion on the American right already. The problem is, this is not something that any opinion taker, any opinion poll taker, would ever think to ask the American public in 2015, right? 
what's your what's Vladimir Putin's approval rating amongst Americans? I don't, you know, it just never would have occurred to them. I don't think we, I've still never seen uh, an opinion poll about this taken among Americans because of a failure of imagination, I think, uh, on the part of people who take polls. Uh, I think that it had such a poll been taken uh, 10 years ago or nine years ago, the results would have surprised a lot of people. We'll, we'll, we'll never know the answer to this. I can't back that up, I should mention. I mean, there are people who take in this podcast who are evangelical Christians. I have friends who are evangelical Christians, right? I I think it is important. I think it is important to make sure that we are being clear that this is not just two, you know, coastal elites uh, blaming everything on evangelical Christians. I, I think, however... The uh, metastasizing uh, of the Republican Party's twisted worldview is linked to this. And oh, I, I think so. Very. Dramatic. You know, you. I mean, you. You will see figures, plenty of figures from Tucker Carlson on down in the right wing media ecosphere in the United States, embracing uh, Orban. Putin, he, what Tucker just went to to interview Putin rather right. embarrassingly for him. Yeah. Um, but that is the link, right? Ronald Reagan was and remains an iconic figure in Republican myth, but Ronald Reagan held the line against Russian communism and the and the polar opposite of the United States and freedom and the West and the Cold War. Yes, but he but, also, but he had the the word defending religion as well. He uh, he more than anyone else right. cemented uh, the union even, of evangelical Christianity in his own party. Uh, right, because he, Jimmy Carter, the uh, an elected Democrat, was an evangelical Christian, and that was part of his base. Yes, and in fact, Reagan, uh, as a divorced Hollywood actor, needed to make. That connection. That was not something that was actually naturally part of who he was. He had to go out and get those voters, but he did it. Uh, And there's a metaphorical construction that I'm going to employ here that might be a little controversial. But when we talk, we're talking politics, so we're off the rails anyway. When we talk about Donald Trump, we often say he's the first president to do this or that. He's the first president to be impeached twice. He's the first president to be indicted after he left office. Some for some crimes that committed while he was president, some crimes he committed after, etc. Uh, when he left office, I would say metaphorically, mind you, that he became the second Confederate president of the United States. Uh, now nobody's seceding. Right. Uh, States are not leaving the union, but he represents a second nation that is opposed to the prevailing constitutional order of the United States. That second nation is not a democracy. It is a dictatorship Uh, and it seeks to take control of the entire country, not just part of it. through the democratic process, and then end that democratic process. Now, perhaps you might think this is exaggeration. 
And to some extent, perhaps it is. I'm just using this metaphor as a framework for broadening our understanding. I, I admit it's not it's all going to hold water, right? So if we think about somebody like Mike Johnson, right, the titular speaker of the House. Who is He's holding not- up aid to Ukraine and imperiling the uh, Pax Americana. Yes, right. He's not actually interested in being the Speaker of the House. He just got that job in order to get a different job in the Confederacy. That's the country he's actually working for, right? He's the, the denial of military aid to Ukraine is the Confederate policy of the United States because it was dictated by the leader of that nation, who is Donald Trump. And Mitch McConnell just announced he was stepping down from the Senate leadership. The New York Times reported that McConnell conceded he was out of step with the national security consensus of his own party. Uh, and Again, so- a disgraceful uh, leave, uh, a disgraceful abdication of our duty in on the world stage by the that's right but he understood that uh he couldn't he couldn't be allowed to serve in the confederacy right uh and so there was sam does anybody in this republican party the second nation this confederacy this trumpian uh state have they never read a history book do they not know what the 20th century was do they just not care uh I mean, it's not like you and I hang out a bunch at Trump rallies, so I guess maybe you're the wrong person to ask. The thing is, John, the the second option you proffered there, I think, is the right one. It's that they don't care. They it's have just nihilism. The, they had they have read the history, uh, and it doesn't bother them. And this is the you know, look at what's happening in the Supreme Court. That the Republicans have actually been trying to do this. For a very long time. I mean, I okay. want to kiss. I do want to keep this internationally based. I, you know, domestic U.S. policy politics. I understand the Supreme Court and abortion and all this stuff, but like just from the international order, from preventing World War III, the 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 disregard for the realities are, are I mean, truly, Sam, unimaginable. I understand that, and you're right. Okay, uh, but. The fact is, the idea of the United States as an internationalist country uh, is anomalous. It's an 80-year alum. It's also essential. Okay, fine. But uh, prior to World War II, uh, isolationism was the order of the day throughout And that's my point. I'm like, we know it doesn't work. That's we right. have a pretty good example of it not working. But still, the United States had to be dragged into the Second World War, kicking and screaming. And many people in the United States up until that time supported Hitler, or at least didn't believe he was a big problem. Right. Uh, and it had to be proven to them after they joined the war. They didn't even understand it until the war was over. Uh, and... I think that it, we would be foolish to overlook these historical facts. All right. So, John, if you say, don't these people understand history? I would say, don't you? Right. Uh, well, is it Churchill who said, American, you can always count on the Americans to do the uh, the right thing after they've exhausted all of their options? I'm not sure. I mean, that might be that, apocryphal, but that, but that is yeah. attributed to him. Yeah. Which yeah. Is a great, great and it, and the reason 
it, we have that phrase is because there is some truth to it. Absolutely. So right. it's going to take some catastrophic thing. And the Chinese invasion of Taiwan might not even reach that bar. Oh, I don't think so. No. To get enough of um, this second America, this confederacy, on board with internationalism again. Yes. And if there's one, I don't want to go. Oh, it's much, terrifying. I'm, I don't want to go much into the, you know, the Supreme Court and things like this. But if there's one thing that we should have learned before this week, but we definitely better learn it this week, it's that it's up to us. The only safeguard we have left is the electorate. That's all. Right? Our uh, colleague, uh, Tim Miller, said the exact same thing on uh, his Bulwark podcast yesterday. And he's not wrong. Every other institution has failed. And so maybe Tim wants to think about whether he really wants to be a classical liberal as he seems to be dancing around with. And this whole Edmund Burke thing of, uh, you know, well, we have to filter everything through our institutions. It's like, what institutions? We don't have institutions. They are all corrupt. They have all failed. All we have is us. Edmund Burke, mad respect. Let him rest in peace. Come up with your own ideas. So the international question after a year and a half of this podcast finally found its way into the uh, American political conversation, which you and I carry on, not online. Um, fascinating. I guess now there's no time like the present. What do you, What are we looking at for next week? Uh, Iran is having uh, parliamentary elections starting today. They're not especially eventful. Uh, somebody else is probably having another election. Uh, but uh, all these things will continue to unfold. We'll see what happens during the week. All right. Uh, John Ramey Media at gmail.com. He's Sam Park. I'm John Ramey. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks, folks. 